All right, well, good morning. Happy New Year. This first Sunday in 2019. Can you guys believe that? That does not seem possible. But here we are, nevertheless. Um, and if my calculations are correct, I went back and looked. I like to do this from time to time. If, if my math is correct, we are now two years and two months into our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, my Two years and two months. That may seem like a long time to some of you. I don't know. Um, but I, I think Pastor Peter would agree with me. We really are just skimming the surface of all that's here. I, th- I think we could spend many, many years in just this gospel and not plumb the depth of riches of all that is here. Um, but we are approaching the end of this account of the life of the Lord Jesus. We're still in chapter 26 this morning. We've been here for a while. Uh, but if the Lord wills, we're going to finish chapter 26 and move into chapter 27. So we've got a lot of material to cover this morning. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for his help and then let's just get to work here. Father, thank you for a new year, new opportunities, new blessings, new grace, new mercy, new mercies every morning, Lord. And Father, we just confess right as we we begin this new year that we are just as needy as last year, just as dependent on you. So Father, I, I thank you for this setting and I ask you to come and minister to us in ways that we know we need, in ways that we don't know we need. Father, by your Spirit and through your Word, come and be with us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, you will remember from previous weeks, and and by the way, let me just stop and apologize up front. Um, I've been fighting the enemy's darts all week long with a cold, so I'm just going to go ahead and apologize for any sniffing and snorting you're going to hear from up here, so... I've got a halls in my mouth, so hopefully it won't be too distracting. Um, You will remember from previous weeks that Jesus has finished praying in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. We spent a lot of time there. He fought and won the battle for faith there in the garden. Last week, uh, Judas showed up in the garden with the Jewish temple guards and the Roman soldiers, and Pastor Peter took us to John chapter 18 to see this little skirmish between Peter and the high priest servant, Malchus. And you remember, he cut off his ear. Um, And Jesus was arrested. And we ended in verse 56 of Matthew 26 with the disciples scattering, leaving Jesus alone, leaving him to the authorities. But before we start this morning in picking up in verse 57, I actually want to go back to John chapter 18 Because I think John captures in a unique way where Jesus' mind was at as he approached the suffering that awaited him. And I think we need to understand this as we see this unjust treatment that Jesus is going to, to receive. So if you would, flip over to John chapter 18. And let's just very briefly ask the question, excuse me, where was Jesus' mind? How was he processing these things as he moved toward this suffering? So John chapter 18, the soldiers, the authorities have arrived on scene. And look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Now just stop right there. You know how when you go to the eye doctor, if you've done this recently or 
getting fitted for glasses or contacts, a new prescription. You look through that machine with the different lenses and the doctor toggles back and forth between the two different lenses and he asks the question, is it more clear now or now, right? This or this? Now, I usually have to go back and tell him to let me see the first one. We need to have the ability to sort of flip back and forth between Jesus' humanity and his divinity, often in the same verse even. And Jesus, in his humanity, has studied the scriptures. He, he knows the prophecies that have stated what the Messiah must endure. He knows Isaiah 53. He knows about the suffering servant in his humanity. But I believe John is meaning to say more than that here. I believe John is pointing, up, pointing us to the reality that Jesus, in his divinity, knew all of the details that was awaiting him. He knew the mockery, the, the insults, every blow of the fist that would pummel his body. He knew the, the pain, the agony. He knew the blood that would pour from his wounds. And knowing all of this, he stepped forward. He moved intentionally toward what was awaiting him. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now now get this, okay? Try to put yourself in there in that moment if you can. Peter sees men approaching Jesus in the dark, there to arrest him to capture him, right? He sees evil prevailing, advancing, and he wants to stop it. But Jesus, looking at the exact same events unfolding in front of him, in front of him these soldiers with weapons and torches in the, in the dark of the night, there to seize him, Jesus sees this, and he sees something different, doesn't he? He sees what he has seen and agreed to from all eternity. He sees to what he, what he had just submitted to in the garden. He sees what the Father has ordained would happen. Peter sees the outstretched hand of wicked men there to seize Jesus. Jesus sees the outstretched hand of the Father preparing to pour out the cup of his divine wrath. The same activity... Two different viewpoints, one earthly and one divine. And it called to mind for me what Joseph said to his brothers back in Genesis chapter 50 about the evil that they had perpetrated against him. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers in in verse 20? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it the very same actions of his brothers. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. I believe that's where Jesus' mind was at as he was approaching the edge of suffering. God the Father is sovereign over all that is about to happen. It has been agreed to in eternity past. Scripture will be fulfilled. In one sense, evil temporarily will win out. Jesus will die physically. He will go to the grave. But that very same evil will be turned in on itself. 
It will be inverted. It will be emptied of its power. And in the end, that same evil will only advance God's declared purposes. That's staggering to me. Jesus is no mere victim here. As he is going to be paraded through these trials, even at the moment when all seems lost, Jesus is in as much control as he's ever been. And we need to understand that. But what about these trials? What, what are these trials that we're going to see? Well, we're going to see today in, in Matthew chapter 26 and next week in, in chapter 27 that really there are two overall trials, and each trial has three hearings within each, three different stages, so to speak. The first trial is with the Jewish authorities where Jesus goes before Annas, which, by the way, this first little encounter is only in John's gospel, and that's another reason we're starting here in John chapter 18. But first, Jesus goes before Annas. He's then going to go before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin or the council. And then he's going to end up one final session with the council after daybreak. That's the Jewish trial. That's what we're going to look at today. The second trial is with the Roman authorities, the secular trial. He's going to go before Pilate, Herod, and then back before Pilate. So you have a total of six different hearings altogether, which If you know the symbolic number of, uh, biblically speaking, at least for the number six, it's the number of man. And so it's very fitting that Jesus would face six trials. And I've broken it down. These three hearings that we're going to look at should be there in your notes. Under three headings, an unjust arraignment, an unjust assembly, and an unjust agreement. So let's first look at this unjust arraignment. And hopefully you're still there in John chapter 18 because... Matthew's account tells us that the soldiers take Jesus to Caiaphas, and that's true, they do. But John fills in a little bit of the timeline for us, and it te- he tells us that first they take him to Annas. So look at, look at verse 12 in John chapter 18. And let's look at this scene before Annas. Verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Skip down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I think we can so easily read Scripture as if we're reading just words on a page. Maybe an interesting story, perhaps. We, we read it monotone. We, we, we read it without color, without life, without the, the tension that is meant to be conveyed. But this is high drama. This is the highest of dramas. God incarnate has been captured. Just let that sit on you for a moment. God incarnate has been captured. He's been apprehended. He's been bound, verse 12 says. The word made flesh has been bound, tied up, 
by men. There is irony here. And I think we're going to see that throughout these trials, there is, it's, they are full of irony, divine irony, I would call it. So they bring Jesus to Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas. Well, who was he exactly? He had been high priest for a number of years before. He had become quite powerful to the point that the Roman government was thought to have sort of pushed him, nudged him into retirement, so to speak. And they had put Caiaphas in his seat, his son-in-law. And it's interesting, John makes this little side comment in verse 13 about Caiaphas. He says, who was high priest that year, as if to take a swipe at how political the system had become. The office of high priest was meant to be for a a lifetime appointment. But John seems to be saying it had become almost a pawn for the, the Roman government. But Annas still wielded power. He still had his hands in things, and the Jewish authorities likely wanted him to be on their side when it came to what they were doing with Jesus because of the influence he still had with the people. But this is a sham ploy. This is a sham tactic. Annas has no official legal authority. And here he is serving as the arraigning authority over Jesus. But no formal charges have been presented. No defense has been afforded. They're in the house of Annas, which is illegal. They're at night, which is illegal. By the letter of the Jewish law, all of this is out of bounds. And of course, Annas knows this. And he also knows that he has nothing on Jesus. Nothing. And so verse 19, it says, He asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. How big is your following? What's this group you're leading? What's your, what's your platform about? Possibly trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself and get a, a charge of insurrection to bring against him. But Jesus knows exactly what to say to move things forward. His response to Annas is brilliant and it's pointed. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You're, you're revealing yourself for what you are, Annas. You're not even following your own legal proceedings here. And it's clear Jesus' comment hits its mark in unmasking Annas because immediately the guard strikes him. He hits him. Truth has a way of arousing animosity, doesn't it? In our day, our, our postmodern culture, truth itself seems to have become public enemy number one. Our, our language, our words have come under the scrutinizing eye of this all-powerful supposed God of tolerance. To say something as simple in our day as there is a right and there is a wrong, to say that publicly in our day is to expose yourself to attack. I'm convinced more and more of us as Christians are going to be called before the anises of our day and answer for our beliefs. Maybe there won't be repercussions, but maybe there will be. Maybe your job will be on the line if you don't bow the knee to secularism. Maybe my job will be on the line if, if I don't use the required pronouns of our day. Are we ready 
Are we willing to stand in the face of Annas and boldly say, what I have said is true? Are we willing to face the world and answer for our doctrine, come what may? We need to be asking ourselves that question. Jesus was ready. I like to think how easily Jesus could have ran circles around these opponents of his, entangling them in their own regulations, but his response is as simple as it is profound. If what I said is right, why do you hit me? Here in the darkness of the night, Jesus shines the light of truth on Annas. Remember what John said, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And it's clear that while Annas is sitting in judgment on Jesus, he is the one being judged. Jesus, with his plain, straightforward answer, has just laid bare the unjust nature of this arraignment. And apparently Annas has nothing more to say. So he sends Jesus to Caiaphas. So if you would, flip back to Matthew chapter 26. And let's see the unjust assembly. This is where we'll spend most of our time. We know that the Jewish authorities have been plotting for some time now to get rid of Jesus, to take him off the scene. Just back at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, the chief priest and the elders had gathered in Caiaphas' home to strategize, and so now they have reconvened. Look at verse 57, Matthew chapter 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Skip to verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered him, He deserves death. Mark tells us the chief priests were also there. So all three groups comprising the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were all there. This is the, the Jewish version of the Supreme Court. And they're gathering here in such a strange, out-of-the-norm manner. It's clear they perceive Jesus to be a clear and present danger. So here they are in the house of the high priest at night, holding this trial that is going to turn out to be a mockery of justice. And, and we could go through and, and study each of the violations that they actually uh, do during the night with these pro- proceedings, 
But I just want to briefly list a few. These are the violations. These are some of the things that they violated of their own law. It was illegal to hold a trial at night. It was illegal to hold a trial on the day of or the day before a feast. It was illegal to conduct a trial in any place other than the approved courtroom in the temple. There were very strict procedural rules for presenting formal charges that were completely absent that night. There is no provision given for a defense or for the testimony of witnesses for Jesus. Scribes were to carefully record the minutes and each individual vote. Trials had to be public, not held in secrecy in the middle of the night in a private home. The Sanhedrin was not to serve as a prosecutor, meaning it served as the judge and the jury, but it was not supposed to construct a case against anyone. All of these rules were just thrown out the window. This is unjust. This is a sham of a trial. In Luke 22, verse 53, Jesus actually says that the power of darkness is ruling over these proceedings. And there is no depth to which they will go to get rid of Jesus. But remember, Jesus has repeatedly predicted that it would come to this. It's all been coming to this. And as these Jewish rulers assemble to do their underhanded bidding, we are again left with a sense of irony that these supposed religious men who have dedicated their lives to upholding the law, who are so zealously coming after Jesus for breaking the law, have themselves so easily cast aside their own law in the pursuits of their evil intentions. And in doing so, they have become nothing more than hypocritical caricatures of themselves. The famous 18th century Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, once preached a sermon from Deuteronomy chapter 32 titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You may have heard of that. It would become his most famous sermon. But this scene with Jesus standing before this mockery of a Jewish court has led some commentators to refer to this as God in the hands of angry sinners. And indeed, that's exactly what it is. Imagine watching a modern-day courtroom drama where the sentence is given at the beginning of the trial. The judge walks in, would all rise. I find you guilty, you are sentenced to death. And then the trial begins. Well, that's exactly what Matthew tells us is happening here. The council was seeking false charges in order to convict Jesus and put him to death. His fate had already been decided. But there was a problem with their plan, right? It was a big problem. Jesus was sinless. They had nothing on him. They had nothing to charge him, charge him with. There was no dirt to dig up. Oh, there were folks that came forward that tried to bring false witnesses against Jesus, but they couldn't get their stories straight because it was all lies. You may have noticed that it's quite difficult for liars to get their story straight because it's all lies. They couldn't come up with anything. And things were getting desperate, it seems. And Mark chapter 14, verse 56 says that many bore, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Finally, though, they were able to get two witnesses to get their stories close enough, it seems. Verse 60 states, At last two came forward and said, This man said... 
I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. But even then, Mark tells us, chapter 14, verse 59, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Why didn't it agree? Because that's not what Jesus said. And we know that because John actually records the exact quote for us that Jesus said. In chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, John writes, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So not only did they did their stories not line up with each other, they actually misquote Jesus. And they completely missed the context of what Jesus was talking about because he was referring to his body as the temple. So, so try to get this. Jesus is being accused of threatening the temple. Jesus is being accused of threatening the dwelling place for God on earth. I put a D.A. Carson quote in your notes there. He says, The point is that under the terms of the old covenant, the temple was the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement for sin. But this side of the cross where Jesus by his sacrifice pays for our sin, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Thus, he becomes the temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It is in Jesus' death, in his destruction, and in his resurrection three days later that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. Jesus is being accused of threatening the temple. Do you see the irony here? These false accusers are playing right into God's purposes. But things are getting desperate. They have one quote, one misquote, one half of a sentence out of all the witnesses, out of all of their efforts. If if you ever wanted a defense for the sinlessness of Jesus, this is it. The the power of darkness is running the show, Jesus has told us. This is the the highest court in the Jewish Jewish nation, the the, the Jewish Supreme Court. And all of the powers, the supernatural powers of evil, and all of the Jewish powers of their Supreme Court, what do they come up with? One half of a misquote. Because Jesus was sinless. If there would have been something to find, they would have found it but there was nothing to find. And it's though Caiaphas kind of understands how thin their charges are. So he stands up, Matthew says in verse 62, and he he says probably with exasperation, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And again, this is a violation. You don't ask the defendant to clarify the accusations against him. This is desperation talking, and it's unjust. But look at verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. This is powerful. We need, we need to let it just rest on us here. Jesus remained silent. 
Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is breathtaking. The Lord of creation. The Lord of heaven and earth. The ruler and creator of galaxies and constellations. Who controls nature with a word. Stopping a storm in its tracks with just one word. Who at this very moment, and and this very moment by the way, is upholding the universe by the word of his power who could have wiped out all of humanity with a thought. This one sits in silence as these lies are told about him. We need to learn something from our Lord in this moment. I need to learn something. How easy it would have been for Jesus to offer a comeback. How easily he could have cut his opponents down to size. He could have ran circles around these men intellectually, philosophically, legally. But in the face of being shamed and lied about and disgraced, our Savior remained silent. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2.23 And Caiaphas has had enough. This is the climax. Verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas uses the the strongest possible oath there is. This deep religious oath. I adjure you by the living God, he says, unknowingly condemning himself, by the way. And his choice of wording is quite remarkable. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas has been paying attention. He has been paying attention. The last time we heard these two titles was from the lips of Peter. Matthew chapter 16, you remember in his great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now it is coming from the lips of a high priest who is set against Jesus. And you would know that when Jesus was put under this oath, he would respond, and he does. You have said so. Mark adds that Jesus says, I am. You have said so, I am. It is as you say, in other words. And then to add what could only be understood as an exclamation point, Jesus quotes directly from two Messianic passages, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. He just wants to put an exclamation point. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You have said it correctly, Jesus said, but you do not understand what you have said. I stand before you here in this moment, and you're going to have your say with me today, Caiaphas but this isn't the last time you'll see me. You will see me again. You all will see me again. And the tables will be turned. When you see me again, I will come with the fullness of my power 
And on that day, you will not be the ones asking questions. This is sobering. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered him, He deserves death. Any talk of the temple being destroyed is gone. Caiaphas has what he wants. And in the moment of realizing what Jesus has just said, he rips his priestly garments in a dramatic display of supposed outrage. But in doing so, he has violated the law yet again. Leviticus 21.10 states very plainly, the high priest shall not tear his robes. This is almost prophetic. His actions are prophetically showing he is disqualifying himself from the position. In the face of the true high priest, Caiaphas is revealed for what he is. He's a fake. He's a pretender. And he's presiding over an unjust trial. But of course, by Levitical law, blasphemy was punishable by death. The law is very clear. And so that is the verdict rendered. The only problem is that Jesus had not committed blasphemy. He had been telling nothing but the truth. He had been honest. Jesus has been handed a death sentence for telling the truth. He's going to be put to death for actually being the God he claimed to be. And the gathering, it seems, descends into chaos. Look at verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 states, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And Luke records for us in chapter 18, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. This is hard for us to imagine. This is a painful scene. The humiliation, the mocking, the hitting. They, they pummeled him with their fist. The word there, it, it means basically they treated him like a punching bag. And, and the spit. Spitting in the Jewish culture was, as it is in ours, the, the supreme form of a disgrace, of shame. And these religious men, these religious men, these Jewish leaders are spitting in the face of their Messiah. We dare not turn away because this is hard to stomach. Who's committing blasphemy here? Who's on trial? Who's being judged? This is a picture of sin. Sin unrestrained is spitting in the face of God. 
when we read this, I, I think we want to say, how could anyone treat someone like this, much less treat Jesus like this? This sort of indignation rises up, rises up like, we wouldn't have done that. Spurgeon corrects that notion. We all need to lay aside our indignation and bring forth penitence because we have all hit our dear Savior in the face with our sin. <coughs> it was because of our sin, mine and yours, that he endured the abuse of these sinners and went willingly to the cross. This is a mystery to me, guys. I'll just be honest with you. This is a mystery to me. My mind just can't grasp why Jesus saw fit to subject himself to this treatment for me. It's staggering. It staggers my mind and it staggers my heart. It's amazing. I hope it's amazing to you. This, this whole spectacle was, it was a mockery of the Jewish religious system. And through their very actions, God is judging them. Everything about this day was unjust. The arraignment was unjust. The assembly with its false accusations was unjust. The assault was unjust. And then lastly, the final agreement was unjust. But before we look at this final stage of the Jewish trial, the, there at the beginning of chapter 27, Matthew does something interesting. Verse 68 ends with the Jewish officers hitting Jesus and telling him to prophesy to us, you Christ. Tell us who it is that struck you. And, and of course, Jesus doesn't respond. But throughout this whole narrative, beginning back in verse 34, Matthew has kept two secondary plot lines running in the lives of Peter and of Judas. And back in verse 34, Jesus did prophesy that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And Matthew has kept Peter in the scene as we move forward. He was there in the garden with Jesus. He, was, he has fallen asleep. And Jesus had rebuked him saying, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we saw him try to stop the arrest with his sword. He's been there all along. And after Jesus is arrested and taken to Caiaphas' house, we are told in verse 58, the verse that we skipped, if you noticed. This is what verse 58 says. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. He's been out there in the courtyard the whole time, watching this, watching as it unfolds. On one hand, he was brave enough to follow Jesus because he, he wanted to see what would happen. But on the other hand, he was not brave enough to go inside. He stayed out on the edges, on the periphery, so to speak. Someone said he was caught in between curiosity and cowardice. And so amid the, the narrative of Jesus being on trial, facing his accusers and their mocking calls for him to prophesy, Matthew inserts Peter here in the courtyard where he will face his own three trials and will actually fulfill real time one of Jesus' prophecies. It's interesting what Matthew does here for us. 
We won't give this the time it deserves. You could, you could spend a whole lesson or a couple lessons on this, but let's very quickly read through this. Verse 69. <clears throat> now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's almost as if Matthew is inviting us to compare and contrast these two men of God, Jesus on the one hand and Peter on the other, facing their trials. Like I said, we don't have time to cover this, but, but Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 31, what else Jesus had told Peter back when he predicted his betrayal. It's very important. Jesus had told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again. That's a when, not an if. You see that? When you have turned again. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10, verses 27, 28, when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And of course, we know that Peter is restored there on the beach in John chapter 21 when Jesus asked him those threefold questions about his love. Peter is restored into the fellowship. And Peter goes on to establish the church in the book of Acts. He preaches the sermon on Pentecost and he writes his own two letters of Scripture. We know all of that, right? But that's not Matthew. That's not the account Matthew gives for us. Here in Matthew, he gives us these three scenes of Peter denying Jesus in direct contrast to Jesus, having held steady in the face of pressure, and following these three denials, Peter will not be mentioned again in the book of Matthew. It's interesting what Matthew is doing, but I I think to make sure that we do understand, Matthew does tell us with specificity in chapter 28, verse 11, following the resurrection, that, quote, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So he is telling us that Peter's there, indicating that he was still an active disciple. But the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, is unabashedly ashamed of presenting the saints as they are in all their failures. These aren't superheroes. This was Peter the supposed great apostle, but Peter was a real man with real 
weaknesses. And I think we're given this contrast of a very fallible Peter against the firm, resolute Lord Jesus to sober us to the reality that we face an enemy. An enemy within ourselves and our flesh and an enemy without. And an enemy that hunts us down in what Peter will later write, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I think we need to be reminded this morning of the truth that Paul exhorted the church at Corinth with in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I've often wondered whether Peter would have denied Jesus had he gone inside instead of staying outside in the courtyard on the edges, on the periphery. I wonder if his distance from Jesus physically is in some way a picture of how important it is for us to stay near to Christ through his word, through the gathering of the saints in his church on Sunday mornings like this, through prayer, through the ordinary means of grace that we have been given. Let's look at this final little scene. It's very short. An unjust agreement. Chapter 20, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. The Jewish authorities know what they have done is unjust. They know that. How do I know that? Because as soon as daybreak comes, they hold this final little session in the light of day to put a veneer of legitimacy on their actions. This is simply an agreement to all that's been understood in the dark. This is a confirmation of everything they've already decided. The trials in the dark are what mattered. This is one final mockery of justice. But the wording Matthew uses here in verse 2 is significant. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. If you ever want an interesting word study to do, look at this word delivered. Paradidomi in the Greek. In the Gospel of Matthew, particularly towards the the final stages of Jesus' life and how this word is used. We are told in Matthew that Judas delivered Jesus up to the authorities. Paradidomi. We are told the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, delivered Jesus up to the Romans. And we are told that Pilate delivered Jesus up to be crucified. All the same word. And all of that is true. But it's not the whole truth. It's not even the main truth, actually. Paul uses the same word, paradidomi, in another place. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to end right here. Romans chapter 8. If it's okay to have favorite chapters of Scripture, this is probably my favorite chapter in the the Bible. 
Let's start in verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. Paro didamai for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the gospel, my friends. That's the good news. God delivered his son up for us all. And I can't find a higher note to end on than that. So I think we'll just stop right there. Next week, we'll pick it up in chapter 27.